Let us pray. Stir up your power, O Lord, and with great might come among us. And because we are sorely hindered by our sins, let your bountiful grace and mercy speedily help and deliver us. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be honor and glory, now and forever. Amen. I think that's one of my favorite colleagues from the prayer book. Just the, the words are so robust. Stir up your power, O Lord, and with great might come among us. And because we are sorely hindered by our sins, let your bountiful grace and mercy speedily help and deliver us. I don't know about you, but that's the story of my life right there. And uh, that's exactly what we want God to do today is to stir up his power among us. Well, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4 today. We'll perhaps get through all of the material that I have today and have some time for questions at the end, perhaps. On the other hand, perhaps not. So, but we are in Ephesians chapter 4. This is an important subject, and it's one that uh, I do want to take a look at prior to the break for the holidays, and this is the whole issue of spiritual gifts, because this is a subject that many people don't understand, yet it's absolutely essential to the operation of the church. And when I say the church, I mean um, not just the bricks and the mortar, of course, but the church that you see gathered, the people here. So let's go ahead and read Ephesians chapter 4. The screen says 7 through 13. Those are the verses we're going to focus on, but we're going to read through 1 through 13. So if you have your Bibles, you want to open them. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, he said in this section of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, he's been talking about the church. And Paul uses all kinds of analogies for the church. He uses the image of a city-state on one occasion. He uses the image of a marriage on another occasion. But what Paul is really emphasizing in this section is unity, the unity of the church. He said there should be unity, there should be unity and there should be a bond of peace. Why? He says because there is only one body and one spirit, 
He says there's one hope to which we've been called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And because we hold all of these things in common, all of the things that would divide us really have no significance by comparison. So that's Paul's emphasis, that there should be unity in the church. And where there is disunity in the church, the gospel message suffers as a consequence. And we bring disrepute on the name of Jesus Christ. So he emphasizes unity in the church, but we said it's a unity of a sort. It's unity within the truth. It's not unity for unity's sake. It's not just getting along and going along. It's a matter of being united at the deepest level. I think I pointed out to you sometime in the past that C.S. Lewis once said that a true friend is someone with whom you share the highest truth. And everybody else is a mere acquaintance. And If you think about it, it's absolutely true. Those of you who are married, you know how this works. If you hold the highest truth together, even the little things that would otherwise irritate you, you can somehow handle them. And it's oftentimes in marriage the little things that really great. It's, it's not the big things, generally speaking. It's, it's the little things that you're willing to overlook in that flush of romantic love. Like, he doesn't necessarily, in the early days of the marriage, he doesn't, he doesn't pick up his clothes. Well, that's all right. I love him. But about six months into the marriage, that's not funny anymore. You thought you could possibly train him, and you're discovering that he's like a dachshund. He's untrainable. And those are the things that, you know, sort of get you after a while. But if you hold the highest truth, if you hold the, that highest truth in common, well, then you discover that all the other things, they sort of pale in comparison, and unity, true unity is absolutely possible. So Paul is talking about unity in the life of the church in this section, and he comes back to this theme again. Until we all attain, he says in verse 13, to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So this is a recurring theme. This is the thread that is running through his argument. And yet, at the same time that Paul emphasizes unity, he wants to make it very clear that unity doesn't necessarily mean uniformity. It doesn't mean that every member of the church is exactly alike. I mean, how much fun would that be if everybody was exactly alike? So Paul says there should be unity in the body, but that does not mean that there has to be uniformity. There is unity, but it is a unity with diversity. And that is why, as I said, Paul uses many images for the church, but the one that he likes the most is this image of a body. It's the image of a body with many parts. He not only uses it here, but he uses it elsewhere. In Romans chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, Paul writes this, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So Paul says we are all part of one body, but we're not all exactly alike. There is unity, but there is diversity within the body. We each have gifts, and those gifts are meant to complement one another, not duplicate. 
Uh, this is Paul's way of saying that the body is not a machine. A body is an organic thing. A machine is something that we manufacture. How many of you have ever heard the name Eli Whitney? Of course you did. You live in the South. Of course you know who Eli Whitney was. And who is Eli Whitney? What is his claim to fame? He invented the cotton gin in 1794 and revolutionized cotton production in the American South in the antebellum period. But actually, that's not his greatest contribution. Now, if you live in the South, you might think that was his greatest contribution. But actually, what he went on to do is revolutionize American industry completely. Four years after he invented the cotton gin, in 1798, he opened an arms manufacturing center in New Haven, Connecticut. And what he introduced was something completely novel in the world of manufacture. He produced what were known as interchangeable parts. Now, think about that for a moment. Uh, in that time period, the late 18th century, the early 19th century, everybody carried a gun, whether it was a fouling piece to go out and, and, and get your food for the night or whether it was something for protection. Most people in those days had firearms. And you relied on that firearm for any number of things. As I said, oftentimes to put food on the table for your family. Now, if that firearm broke or it malfunctioned, what did you do? Well, what you had to do is you had to go to a gunsmith. And that gunsmith had to make a special part just for your unique gun because he had made your gun unique. In other words, you could not go to a store and just buy another part and put it on the gun. That couldn't be done until Eli Whitney in 1798 introduced the idea of interchangeable parts. And so we can thank him for Lowe's <laughs> and Home Depot and all these places where we go just to buy things, you see, that are mass produced. He invented basically the modern assembly line. And that's the way we think today. But what Paul is saying is that the church is not like that. The, the, the church is not made of all kinds of interchangeable parts. Well, if that person doesn't come to church, well, that's no big deal because we can find somebody else to fill their slot. That's not the image at all. Paul is saying that each and every individual part of the body was designed for a purpose. And if one part of the body is not functioning properly, what happens? The whole body suffers as a consequence. So we need to understand that as the members of the church, each and every member has a part to play, a significant and important part. And nobody can say, well, we don't need her or we don't need him. We need all the gifts if the body is going to function properly. This is not a machine, ladies and gentlemen. This is something organic. It is living and breathing. Each part is uniquely gifted. And that is the point that Paul is making here. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, but, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, the image that Paul uses here for this gifting in the life of the church is the, is the image of a triumphal procession. He says here, when he ascended on high, that is Jesus, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. 
It's the image of a triumphal procession, which was a common image in the ancient world. One of the things you'll notice about Paul when you read through his epistles is that he often draws on athletic images. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have gained the crown. That, that, that's the image that Paul uses here. And the crown that he's talking about is a victor's crown. So he uses athletic imagery. But he oftentimes uses the image in that same passage, as a matter of fact, the image of the military. And we're going to see later on in Ephesians, Paul uses military imagery. He talks about putting on the full armor of God. So Paul oftentimes draws his illustrations from the athletic realm or from the military realm. And this is one of those military images. It's the image of a triumphal procession, something that Paul, as a citizen of the Roman Empire, would have seen from time to time. When the emperor or one of his generals went out on campaign, as soldiers oftentimes did, it was very difficult to maintain peace within the Roman Empire. It was a far-flung empire, and the army was absolutely critical to maintaining that empire. And as the army went out and the emperor would wage a campaign or one of his generals would wage a campaign, if he was victorious, he was brought back in triumphal procession. And this is a great image of it. He would come riding in on a chariot. There would be people going before him, blasting trumpets to announce his arrival. There would be slaves brought in in chains, the captive people, and he would bring the spoils of war with him. And you can see the spoils of war being carried alongside. And those were his. Uh, there's a little bit of this imagery in the 18th and 19th century um, during uh, the great Napoleonic Wars. If a British sea captain went out and he defeated the French, he was entitled to the prizes of war. The ship was a prize of war. The ship's cargo was then disseminated or distributed among the members of the crew. That was the idea. And, and the captain had the right to keep all of that to himself or he could distribute it among the officers and the crew. And most of the time, that's exactly what they did. Well, that's exactly what the emperor did. When he was triumphant, everything that was conquered, everything that was taken as prize of war, well, he could keep that, but from time to time, what he would do is he would distribute that, distribute that among his chief lieutenants, those who were his dearest and closest friends. Well, Paul uses that image here. He says that Jesus Christ has been triumphant. And how has he been triumphant? Well, he has conquered the powers of sin and death and the devil by his death, his atoning death upon the cross, and by his glorious resurrection. And he has ascended. He has ascended to the highest position. Now, theologians call this the Christus Victor, Christ the Victor. There are lots of images for Christ. One is um, Christus Rex, Christ the King. We have a Christ the King Sunday. This is Christus Victor. He is the Victor. And Paul uses this image, as I says, said, in other places as well. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 15, he says this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. See, Jesus is the King in this. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and all things were created for him. So this is the image that Paul has. Christ has triumphed. We have a great anthem that we sometimes sing 
on Easter Sunday. Christ has triumphed. Christ the victor. This is the idea that Paul has here. Now what's interesting is that Paul says, having conquered and having received the spoils of war, what does Christ then do with them? All of these spoils belong to him. All the thrones were created by him and they were created for him. But what does he do? In his generosity, Paul says, he distributes the spoils of war. He divides them. That's the image here in this section. Verse 8, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. This is actually a portion from Psalm 68, a psalm that was probably written as a song of triumph when the Ark of the Covenant was finally taken up to Jerusalem. There was a triumphal procession. There would have been the blowing of horns, ram's horns, and that sort of thing as the ark was taken up to that place, God's chosen city. But what Paul does here is something different. He actually takes Psalm 68, but he adapts it. Psalm 68 speaks of going up in triumph to Jerusalem. But Paul says this in verse 9, In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. This is the most remarkable thing. Paul is saying that Christ was already triumphant. Christ was already sovereign. He was the creator of the heavens and the earth. Isn't that what the first chapter of John says? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And through him all things were made, and without him not anything was made that was made. So Paul is saying Christ was already the sovereign Lord. He didn't have to prove himself to anyone. He didn't have to come and conquer anyone because he was already sovereign. And yet, out of love and out of mercy for us, who were beleaguered, who were oppressed, who were in bondage to sin and death, Christ did what? Christ, who was sovereign, came down. Now that's really what this time of the season is all about. This is what this part of the year is all about. It is the idea that God does not remain up there, aloof, removed, distant, unconcerned with the sufferings and the pain of mere mortals. But in His love, in His grace, in His mercy, He does what? He comes The most powerful image of this is found in Philippians, the very next book in the Bible. So if you have your Bibles, turn there to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, where Paul writes this. He says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Now that is a powerful statement for people living in a 21st century culture. Because by and large, what most people do is they look to their own interests, don't they? I'm going to concern myself with my own business, and somebody else can concern themselves with their own business. And Paul says, as Christians, we are not to look only to our own interests, but we are to be on the watch for the interests of others. Now, how do you do that? He says, well, you have to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, you have to have the mind of Christ... And if you are in Christ, he says, you are entitled to that mind. And what was the mind of Christ? Verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, 
And he took the form of a servant. Now, the word that is translated there as servant is really not an accurate one. The Greek word is doulos. It literally means bondservant. He took the form of a slave. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And not just any death, Paul says, but the death of the cross. Therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He has triumphed. He was sovereign, but he has come down, and he has triumphed over his enemies to do what? To save us, to free us from bondage, and to make us a people meet for himself. And having done that, then what does he do? He then distributes gifts to these people he has redeemed. And that's what Paul goes on to talk about next. He gives us gifts. He not only delivers us, what a great gift to be delivered from the bondage of sin and death, but he does more than that. He gives us wonderful gifts Verse 11, and he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So Paul goes on and lists some of the gifts that were given to the church to build it up, that it might be unified. And what are some of these gifts? Well, the first gift are the gifts of the apostles and the prophets. Now, there are some branches of the church today who will insist that this is a gift that is still around. I'm of the mind that the apostles and the prophets were a gift primarily for the early church. Primarily for the early church. The apostolic office. Now, some would say, well, what about apostolic succession? Isn't it true that the bishops are a continuation of that apostolic line? Well, in a sense, yes, but they are not apostles in the same way that the apostle Paul was an apostle or Peter or James or the rest. They were witnesses, eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Now, somebody might say, well, Paul wasn't, but Paul would say, I absolutely was. I encountered the risen Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, and I was struck blind on that occasion, but God restored my sight. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. We don't have apostles and prophets today in the same sense that the early church did. Why? It's not because Christ has come. He had already come at the time that the apostles and the prophets were active in the early church. The reason why that office is no longer active in the church in the same way that it was in the first century is because in the early days, the only way for the gospel to be proclaimed was by the apostolic witness. You and I, the New Testament says, have a witness even more sure. And what is that? It's the Word of God. That's right. The apostles took their message and they wrote it down for you and for me. So if you want to know what Peter taught, all you have to do is read the epistles of Peter. If you want to know what the apostle Paul was preaching in that Greco-Roman world, all you have to do is what? Read the writings of Paul. That is what the Bible has been given to us for. And that is why every Sunday when we have the reading of the Word, and by the way, we're going to have lots of readings today at the later service because it's lessons and carols. At the end of each and every one of those lessons, the person is going to say what? 
This is the word of the Lord. Now, it may be a reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah from the Old Testament. It may be a reading from something in the New Testament. But at the end of the reading, we don't say the word of Isaiah. We don't say the word of Paul. We say this is the word of the Lord. Because we believe that God the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles and empowered them to do marvelous things, to teach and to preach and to perform miracles. And we believe that God the Holy Spirit so superintended the process that what they produced in terms of the New Testament is not just their words, but it's the word of God. And that is why, as Christians, you and I cannot afford to give up the Bible. Now, that's happening in many denominations today. I don't even need to name which ones they are. But the problem is, when you give up the Bible, what do you have to offer to the world that people can't get out there in the world? We don't have anything to offer them, you see, that they cannot get someplace else. So Paul says, God gave them revelation. That's a marvelous thing, you see. You see, if God hadn't given the apostles, if God hadn't given the prophets, if God hadn't given us the scriptures, we would be in the dark. You and I would be able to know that there is a God. Because Paul makes it very clear in Romans chapter 1, God has revealed himself in the things that have been made. You look at the created order, and you can tell that there is order in the universe. Now, I'm not saying that there are not catastrophes, there are not disasters in the world. Of course there are. But the fact remains, there's also order in the universe. Physicists talk about the, the laws of nature. Well, in order for there to be laws, it only stands to reason, there has to be a lawgiver. So we see order in the universe. Paul says that's why men are without excuse. In Romans chapter 1, he says the problem for humanity and the reason that God's wrath is revealed against the ungodliness of men is not because people are ignorant of the truth, it's because people suppress the truth. Because what may be known about God, he said, is plain to them in the things that have been made. But here's the problem. While nature can tell you there is a God, it cannot tell you what God is like. Now, you can stand out on the high battery and watch the sun set and think to yourself, God is so good. But when the tide is washing up over the high battery and flooding your garden, you may not think that God is so good. So nature can give you mixed signals. It can tell you that there is a deity, but it cannot tell you what God is like. For that, you need something more than a general revelation. You need a special revelation. And the highest form of revelation came in the person of Jesus Christ. And he passed that authority and that witness on to his apostles. And the apostles lived normal lifespan like the rest of us. But when they died, they wrote it down in a book. This is why John Wesley said, he said, I want to know one thing. I want to know the way to heaven. He said, I want to know how to land safe on that happy shore. And he said, thanks be to God for he has written it down in a book. He said, give me that book. And at all costs, make me a man of one book. So God gave, first of all, as a gift to the church, to those he had redeemed, a revelation of himself. That's the apostolic and the prophetic office. It comes to us in the form of the scriptures today. That's a great gift. You know, there's uh, some branches of the church that are interested in relics. Now, some years ago when I went to Egypt and climbed to Mount Sinai, 
there is a marvelous monastery at the foot of Mount Sinai called St. Catherine's. It has the largest collection of ancient Christian documents outside the Vatican. It's absolutely spectacular, but it's out in the middle of the desert. And uh, one of the things that we did is we had an opportunity to view the parchments and so forth, but they also had a relic. It was St. Catherine's finger. You, know, you went there and you saw Catherine's. <laughs> I always jokingly said, St. Catherine gave me the finger uh, when I was there. But, but there it was, this, this sort of dried up, ugly looking finger. <laughs> But people went there and they, they venerated these things. And see, we, we get attached to things like that, don't we? We understand that. Family pieces that are passed down to us, we venerate these things, we honor these things. But let me tell you, there is no more sacred relic on earth, aside from the person sitting next to you, than God's Word. And it's the means by which God speaks to us today. If you want to hear God speak, many times people will say to me, well, I wish God would just speak to me. Well, my question is, have you ever opened his word? It's not the only way that God speaks, but it is the primary means. Now, he's going to speak to us today in music, I trust. They say that those who sing pray twice. It's a wonderful thing. But the primary means by which God speaks to us is through his word. So when you pray, Bible study or Bible reading should always be a part of your prayers because it's here. And, and it, you see, the Bible is not an answer book. That's a, that's a great danger. People think that this is like a math book. You know, every now and then, when I was a kid, they'd hand out the textbooks and you'd get the teacher edition and all the answers in the back. The teachers say, where's my edition? Where? Give me that back. But that's the way we think of it. Oh, you're dealing with lust today. Well, just, you know, turn to the back and find the passage. Or we do something even worse. Oh, Lord, I need a word from you. And so we just open the Bible and we point to a passage and say, this is my passage for today. And you read it and it says, and Judas went out and hanged himself. <laughs> I said, well, I, that, that, that can't be the word. So you, you close your eyes and, and you flip to another passage. You say, this is the word for today. And it says, go and do likewise. See, that's the way we operate, but that's not the way the Bible is. This is a living word, and it's like any other thing. If you are going to really grow in your knowledge and love of the Lord, you need to have a relationship with the one who is speaking. So that's one of the gifts that God has given to the church, apostles and prophets. That comes down to us by way of the scriptures. He's given us evangelists. Now, what's an evangelist? An evangelist is someone who has a special gift for conveying the gospel to people who have not heard it in such a way that they have a desire to receive it. Now, this is a special gift. Not everybody has the gift of evangelism. Now, here's a little caveat. We are all called to do evangelism, but not everybody has that unique gift for being able to present it in such a way, in such a compelling and winsome way, that people want to receive it. Billy Graham was an evangelist. Billy Graham would be the first one to tell you he was not a great theologian. There were others who had deeper thoughts than Billy Graham, but what Billy Graham had was an anointing. He had an ability to proclaim the gospel in such a way that people, by the blessing of the Holy Spirit, responded to it in droves. I cannot tell you the number of people, ministers over the years that I have met, who were converted through the ministry of Billy Graham and his crusades. 
There are probably some people in this room today who went down and gave their lives to Jesus Christ as a result of hearing Billy Graham preach. Billy Graham's an extraordinary individual in that he has preached to more people than anyone in history. Did you know that? More than anyone in history. An extraordinary man and a gift of evangelism. Louis Palau is another. A Bishop Festo Cavendry, who was the Bishop of Nigeria, also had this gift of evangelism. The ability to proclaim the gospel in such a way that people knew that it was the truth of God and they couldn't help but respond to it. Now, not everybody has that gift. We are all called to share our faith, but there are some people upon whom there is this special anointing. That is their calling. That is their gift. And it makes a huge difference. But here's what's really interesting. If you read through the New Testament, what you discover is that evangelism is primarily a layman's gift. When we think of evangelism, we tend to think that that's the responsibility or that's the gifting of the clergy. And there are some clergy who have it, like Bishop Cavendry and like Billy Graham. But in the New Testament, the gift of evangelism was primarily given to lay people. There's only one person in the New Testament who's actually called the evangelist, and it's not St. John. We say St. John the evangelist, but that's not true. We refer to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as evangelists, and it's true. They, they did the work of evangelists. But there's only one person who gets the title, and it's Philip. And Philip was a deacon. He was a servant in the life of the church. What was the job of the deacons in the early days of the church? To wait on tables. To wait on tables. That was their responsibility so that they could free up the apostles to do their job. So evangelism is the responsibility primarily of the lay people. And where would we be if there weren't those who went out and shared their faith in such a way that they bring others into fellowship with Jesus Christ? So we're told that God has given us gifts. One of the gifts is the apostolic witness. To us, that comes down to us in the form of the New Testament. He's given some to be evangelists. That is, they have the gift of sharing the faith in such a way that people respond to it. Paul goes on to say he gave some to be pastors and teachers, shepherds and instructors. He gave some to be teachers. Pastors and teachers, that is the primary responsibility of the clergy. When a clergyman is ordained in our tradition, the first thing they are handed is a Bible. Now, sometimes they give them other gifts as well. They give them chalices and chasubles and all these other things. But actually, the prayer book only requires one thing be given, and that is a Bible, because it is the teaching office that is the primary responsibility of the clergy. And I would go so far as to say that one of the reasons the mainline denominations are so weak, anemic spiritually today, is because they have neglected the responsibility of the teaching office. It's as simple as that. So the people are not getting strong, robust theology that builds them up. They're getting pablum. Now, it's interesting. Paul says pastors and teachers. The word pastor can also be translated as shepherd. Now, one of the things you notice about sheep is that they're not like cattle. I always say that you lead sheep. You drive cattle. You've seen the Westerns. How do you, how do you, how do you handle with ca cattle? There are people riding from behind, shooting off guns, and cracking whips, and cursing to get the cattle moving in the right direction. That does not work with sheep. 
You try that with sheep, and the only thing a sheep will do is they will not get in line, they will scatter. Any shepherd will tell you that you lead sheep. You drive cattle from behind, but you lead sheep. Dwight David Eisenhower was a wonderful leader, and he knew exactly how to lead men. It's what made him a brilliant military commander during the Second World War. And he had this wonderful principle for leadership. Somebody once asked him, you know, how do you handle George Patton and Montgomery? I mean, you've got these two prima donnas. How, do you, how in the world do you deal with them? And he pulled a string out of his pocket and he stretched it out on the table. And he took his finger and he pushed the back part of that string and it just balled up in a wad. And he stretched it back out again, took his finger and put it at the front of the string and pulled it all around the table. He said the same thing with men. He said, you try to drive them from behind, you're going nowhere. You get out in front and you lead by example. That is what a shepherd is supposed to do. That is exactly what Jesus did. Now, it doesn't mean that that means that the shepherd is always going to be kind and meek and mild. There are times when, shepherd, when sheep get out of line, and that's why the shepherd carries a crook, the purpose of which is to do what? To pull them in line. But he's nevertheless leading them, not driving them. And the best way for a pastor to lead his congregation is not by telling them, this is what you're going to do because I have the authority and that's the way it's going to be. Like it or leave it. You know, don't let the door hit you on the behind, on the way out, that sort of thing. But it's by the teaching office. See, if a pastor teaches and his authority is not an authority of his own, it's not an authority that is derived from the canons. Listen, if you have to appeal to the canons, you've already lost the battle. But if it's an authority that comes from the Word of God, then what? It's not the pastor's or the man's authority. It's not the authority of his office. It's the authority of the Word of God. And so he's appointed some to be shepherds and instructors. Jesus was a great teacher. Did you ever notice that in the Gospels, when people came up to Jesus, most of the time what they referred to him as a teacher? That's what the word rabbi means. On one occasion, a rich young man came up to Jesus and said, Good teacher. Tell me, what must I do in order to be saved? And the first thing Jesus said was, you know the scriptures. So you see, that is such an important office for us today. And that is the primary role of bishops and priests. And I just want you to understand, that is always going to be my top priority at St. Philip's as long as I'm here. There are lots of other things that people are going to want me to do. And one of the things I try to do is surround myself with really good quality people who do the things that I don't do so well better than I would so that our gifts complement each other. But I see my primary responsibility in the life of the church is to be that, to be a shepherd and a shepherd who teaches. And I think that's the primary responsibility of the role of bishops and priests. It is a pastoral office in the sense that it is a shepherd's office. John Stott, who was, of course, a great Anglican pastor, um, had a great influence on a whole generation, put it this way. He said, nothing is more necessary for the building up of God's church in every age than an ample supply of God-gifted teachers. It is teaching which builds up the church. It is teachers who are needed most. Now, this is primarily the responsibility of the clergy, but not exclusively. Some of you have a gift for teaching, and you should be exercising that gift in the life of the church. 
whether it's among adults or it's among children. You have that gift, and you should be exercising that gift. Because if you are not exercising that gift, then the body suffers as a consequence. So he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be pastors, some to be teachers. Now, that's the only thing Paul mentions here, but it needs to be said this is not an exhaustive list. If you read through 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, and Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, you're going to see that there are lots of other things that he gives. He's already mentioned some of them. We mentioned Romans chapter 12, verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in a portion to our faith, if service in our serving. Some of you have the gift of service. You don't like to be out front. You don't like to be out there preaching and teaching. Evangelism is something you're an introvert by nature. Well, here's a wonderful gift for you, service, exhortation, generosity. That's one, interesting. He who contributes, he does it with generosity, the gift of mercy, with cheerfulness. We, We are kind to others. There are some people that just have that gift of compassion and mercy, and they see someone in need, and they want to relieve that suffering. They want to bear one another's burdens, and that is a gift. Not everybody has that gift, but you may have that gift. The gift of generosity, that's not a matter of being wealthy. That's a matter of using what you have been given for the benefit of Christ and His church. And some of you have that gift, the gift of generosity, and the church desperately needs it. Money is not an end-all and a be-all, but let me tell you something, it certainly is a powerful, powerful tool. Two final thoughts, and we don't, as I said, have the time to go through all the spiritual gifts. If you want to see what your spiritual gift is, take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, or take a look at Romans chapter 12, and understand this, we are going to have a special class that's going to be offered Coming up in the spring, it's a spiritual gifts inventory. And and Frenchie Richards and and Andrew O'Dell and Brian McGreevy and I are going to be working on that. So if you are a believer, if you're a Christian, you want to know what your place is in the life of the church, what your spiritual gift is, and this is one of the two final thoughts. Every believer has at least one. Every believer has a spiritual gift. Because if you're a Christian, you have God the Holy Spirit in your life. And God the Holy Spirit distributes His gifts to everybody. Now, some people have a multiplicity of gifts. But every believer has at least one. So two final thoughts. First of all, these are Christ's gifts. That means talents and gifts are not necessarily the same thing. Just because you have a talent for playing music does not necessarily mean that you have a spiritual gift. What is a spiritual gift? It is that which is used to build up the body of Christ so that we come to maturity. You can be very talented, but you're not using a spiritual gift. So these are Christ's gifts. He owns them, he possesses them, and he distributes them as he sees fit. Paul says each one has one. As I've already said, if you're a believer... If the Holy Spirit dwells within you, you've got one of those gifts. Now, you may not know what that gift is yet. That's one of our jobs is to help you figure out what it is. And it is to be used. Gifts are given for a purpose. They are not meant to be hoarded. They are meant to be used. You know, it's like your grandmother 
who had that one room in the house where you're not allowed to go into it. And maybe she still had the plastic on the sofa. You know, don't, don't, listen, it's meant to be used. That's one of the things I learned from Kristen's mother. She said, if you've got sterling silver, why don't you use it? We lock it away and we use it once or twice a year. That's crazy. It's been given to you as a gift. Put it to work. Use it. Enjoy it. And use it for the benefit of others. That's one of the reasons somebody thanked me for, for opening our house. Listen, it's a wonderful thing for us to be able to do. When you've got a house like that, you need to open it up. You need to use it for the benefit of Christ and his people and for a time of fellowship. That's what it's all about. If you've got a spiritual gift, you are to use it. You are to use it for the common good, for the building up of the body of Christ. If the body is to be well, all members of that body have to use their spiritual gift. If you're not using it for the body of Christ, the body is suffering as a consequence. So all of that, by way of saying, every single one of you today is absolutely essential to the well-being of the ministry of St. Philip's Church. We need every single person. This is not a spectator sport. You all have a part to play and no matter how large or small that part is, it is essential to the health of the body of Christ. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise that you are a generous God, that you sent your Son to come down, that he descended into the lower regions, but then triumphed over his enemies and ascended, and now shares the spoils of war with us. We thank you, Lord, for his generosity. And we pray that in your mercy we would use our gifts, we would discover what those gifts are, and we would use them to the best of our abilities for the glory of your name, for the well-being of your people, and for the spread of your kingdom. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.